Gurmagat Shivan, Gurmagat Galer, Tafaljot Galer. I'm glad to see you here in such numbers. Um, as Siobhan said, for the next few weeks, starting next week with my eminent colleague, um, you're going to hear more that you ever really wanted to hear, as much as you wanted, maybe more than you wanted to hear about Brian Baru, 1014, the Vikings, and everything else. And I think it was felt that before you'd be, well, before you could experience or, or appreciate these contributions next week and the weeks after, that you might need something by way of background. So I'm really here just as the wallpaper man. I'm, I'm, I'm here just to put in the background and give you some idea of what the background might have been. Um, the title is a little bit alluring, but because the ambassador is here, it may have to be diluted slightly for, for broadcasting. Um, the Vikings, um, generally speaking, historians, I could say by way of preamble, historians are inclined to uh, steer clear of uh, periodization. They don't like drawing hard and fast divisions in time. But actually, in the case of our history, it, it makes sense, and it made sense back in 1972 for my uh, revered teacher and colleague, Gerard McNichol, now sadly no longer with us, but at that time, I think nearly um, probably already professor of history in uh, UCG, as it was at the time, now NUI Galway. Uh, in this first volume of a, a very famous and very valuable collection that appeared in 1972 and 73, the Gill History of Ireland series, and it made sense, as I say at the time, to make volume one Ireland before the Vikings, because whatever else we say about the Vikings, whatever else I might have to say about the Vikings in the next hour or so, um, the Vikings were new uh, in the period around 800, and it therefore made sense to regard Ireland before the Vikings as representing a particular period of Irish history, Ireland in the period of the Vikings then, another uh, period in Irish history, and so on. So it's not altogether anachronistic. Uh, that said, um, I think the idea of the Viking impact, um, the degree to which the Vikings had an impact in Ireland, and the agenda surrounding that whole idea goes back to somebody before 1972, and that is this famous scholar, D.A. Vinci, Dan Vinci. Dan Vinci, before ever he became the doyen of early Irish legal studies here, he was the great, great Irish scholar and authority on the subject of Brehan Law. Uh, and before he ever devoted himself to Celtic studies, of which he was the leading scholar here for many years until his death, he spent several years as Irish uh, minister plenipotentiary in Weimar, Germany. And I well remember him discussing at a table down in one of the clubs not far from here about how he enjoyed having tea and bickies with Hindenburg. Uh, he has some wonderful reminiscences about the first time he encountered Adolf Hitler and things like that. He was a very, very interesting man and a very multifaceted man. Uh, somebody worth studying uh, for a whole variety of reasons, um, perhaps also because he was the uncle of Maeve Binchy and Professor uh, William Binchy down in Trinity. But that wasn't his chief claim to fame, obviously. Um, I think the reason why we look back to Dan Binchy in the context of the Vikings is because of a paper that he gave, a famous paper that he gave at the first ever International Congress of Celtic Studies held here in 1959. And he said himself, the passing of the old order, which is the title that he chose for his talk, he chose deliberately because he really did believe that the arrival of the Vikings represented a watershed in Irish history, a turning point in Irish history, after which Irish society, Irish civilization, as we had known it, so to speak, in the period before 800, that had been changed utterly as a result of the Vikings. Uh, I can leave you there to read for yourselves what he said. I won't take you through it line by line. But I think, as I say, this set the agenda, and from that point on, for at least 20, 30 years, people were responding to this attitude. Uh, in the first place, as I say, because Dan Binchy was such a formidable scholar in his own right. But if you ask the question, was it really true? Could it possibly have been true that uh, the arrival of the Vikings represented the passing of the old order? Was all changed, changed utterly 
after 795 or 800 or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think it's fair to say that in the period since, um, certainly in the last 20 odd years, I think, there has been a tendency amongst Irish scholars particularly, but not just Irish scholars, because I'll come back to that in a moment, but there was a tendency to, to perhaps move away from the documentary evidence, uh, the analytic sources, the so-called proto-chronicle material that we had, which recounts so many uh, interesting details about the Vikings and their incursions, and the tendency to move towards the archaeological or the artifactual evidence. And what I'm giving you here, just by way of illustration, is um, a common a garden sort of map I found in one of the standard illustrated modern books on the subject of the Vikings in these islands, Viking Age hordes in Ireland. And you can see there at a glance that um, whatever the range or the quality or the amount or, or however you want to classify these hordes, uh, it doesn't require an IQ of millions and you don't have to have just come from spec savers to realize that most of the Viking activity that's recorded in the map is concentrated on the east, uh, along the Irish Sea, that part of the Irish seaboard. Um, there are coin hordes uh, heading towards the Shannon, almost nothing left of the Shannon, so to speak, west of the Shannon. And I think it's probably not being too facetious to say that from about 800 on, it could well be the case that anybody living in Galway or Mayo or Sligo or Leitrim or Roscommon or Donegal probably would never have encountered a Viking from one end of the year to the other, maybe not from one end of the decade to the other. And in fact, I imagine a large number of people in the century after 800 living west of the Shannon probably never encountered a Viking at all. And therefore, had they been presented with Dan Binchy's idea that all had changed utterly, that the Irish world had collapsed, that the Vikings had simply destroyed everything that we held dear in the periods up to 800, they might well have been thinking the way that we in the West think these days when a slight dusting of snow falls in Dublin and the minister closes all the schools. You know, what's all the fuss about? Certainly by comparison with our neighbours on the offshore island, uh, if you think of what the impact of the Vikings was in Britain, uh, specifically in England, to a certain extent obviously in Wales also, this is again a common garden sort of map that you get in these illustrated volumes showing Viking settlement in England. Now Viking settlement in England was way, way, way more substantial than any Viking settlement in Ireland. As you can see on the map, again depending on how you interpret it, and I bear in mind and I'm only too conscious of the fact that uh, where you have a map like this reconstructed on the basis of archaeological evidence, you have to bear in mind the random nature of archaeological evidence. You know, you might have a find like Waterstown next week or, or some uh, similar kind of a hoard or discovery which could literally transform our understanding of these matters overnight. But given the nature of the evidence such as it is, this kind of map, it is possible to put together. And you can see whatever about the archaeological evidence, an even more substantial and more interesting kind of piece of information uh, is a map of place names. And this is a map of place name evidence for Viking settlement. And of course, place names by definition imply settlement. It's not just a passing visit. It's not just a, a call to the post office, removing all the goods and heading off back with your mot on the back of your motorcycle back to Scandinavia to live happily ever after. Um, places in, in Britain or in England, particularly like Grimsby or Whitby or any of these B names, these are all evidence of Viking settlement and settlement is what it says on the tin. These people settled down. Now, it's not possible to put together a map like this for Ireland because the Vikings simply didn't settle here in those numbers. It's just not possible. So bearing that in mind, and bearing, as I say, the degree to which the original um, picture, if you like, of Viking Age uh, settlement or Viking Age impact, 
which we had from Dan Binchy back in 1959. Given that that has changed, it's no surprise that in the course of the last 10 or 15 or so years that in the literature and in the publications, you begin to have the appearance of books like this one, uh, The Vikings in Ireland, Settlement, Trade, and Urbanization. We're not talking about Viking raids anymore. We're talking about something more benign. And the fact that this is a, an American scholar, Mary Vellante is a, an American scholar now teaching in uh, Kentucky, who has served her apprenticeship here, I have to say, and is a fine scholar in her own right. But you can see that there is a subtle shift, or there was a, a subtle shift, if you like, in the presentation of the evidence. And in fact, um, you might argue that things have gone too far, and that now um, we have this sort of fuzzy, cuddly sort of idea of the Vikings, and it's almost de rigueur now to be nice about them. You know, And certainly it's not PC to say unpleasant things about them, for reasons that I'll come back to in a moment. So that where previously we used to talk about pillaging and pilfering and sacking and looting and raping and plundering, whatever you're having yourself, that is no longer the case. We now love the Vikings. They are soft, cuddly, friendly. Uh, there are certain things we take for granted about them. The Viking tribes, so-called, um, spot the difference between a Dane, a Norwegian, and a Swede. Uh, you'd probably know it if a Norwegian appeared in front of you with a battle axe. Uh, I don't think you'd want to linger too long to have a chat with him, but in the circumstances, um, you can see that there's a nice sort of fuzziness about all of this, and generally speaking, although, strictly speaking, I suppose you could almost argue that the facts are true, or at least plausible here, um, there is a degree to which the, the story has been toned down. I don't know how many of you have been watching Vikings on TV, I've been trying to, but for some reason the picture on my laptop is so dark I can't see the half of what's going on. I don't know if that's a reflection of reality and this is authenticity gone mad, um, you know, whether the Vikings really felt the way they did because they just couldn't see what they were doing or where they were going. Um, there's any number of explanations I imagine possible, but in this case anyway, um, our cute uh, Vikings did come to Dublin, as you can see, um, if you wanted to, I suppose, since nobody else is responsible for what happened during the years of the Celtic Tiger, we could always blend the Vikings, we can't blend the Brits anymore, obviously that's no longer possible. But uh, if you understand this uh, representation, the Vikings obviously instigated the building boom in Dublin. Uh, house prices obviously went through the roof as a result of their arrival. Um, it's a possibility, I'm just warning you now, that we can come back in 2050 and celebrate the reopening of Dublin, uh, if it's still there. But apart from that, you can see you're invited to like the Vikings. They really are very pleasant. They didn't really invent Bailey's uh, cream, but you know. They do have beers, uh, occasionally uh, good beers, but we'll come back to that before I finish. Now, I'm being obviously a little bit facetious here and a bit flippant, and you'll have to bear in mind that uh, I'm not a fan of the Vikings. I tried to persuade Siobhan that really I was the wrong person to be talking to on this subject because I, I've stopped liking the Vikings. The reason for that is I'm nearly 60. I reckon I'm entitled to stop liking the Vikings. Other people can like the Vikings, and you'll hear all kinds of reasons next week and the weeks after why you should like the Vikings. But uh, from my point of view, uh, they represent uh, a certain aspect of our history, if you like, which is not altogether uh, wonderful. But at the same time, without being facetious, as I say, and, and reverting to what we know in the way of evidence, or what we think we have in the way of evidence and data, parallel to the, uh, the archaeological excavations and the analysis of that material that we've had in this country, all the way from the famous uh, wood key excavations, and we all marched, some of us marched, and it was that are old enough, marched back in 1972, I suppose it was, to save that wonderful site. And then we got the, um, yes, well, we got the civic offices. But anyway, 
Um, I suppose they got what they deserved. Some people would say that after all the Vikings did, they deserved to be buried under a couple of hundred million tons of concrete. Uh, and why should we be nice to them by building a museum and, and something that, that reached of heritage or, or culture or something like that? But anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Um, in terms of the archaeological data, one of the things that has been striking about more recent studies is the way in which the archaeological evidence for Ireland has been compared with the archaeological evidence for the Viking settlements back in their homelands. And this wonderful book, which appeared just a few minutes ago, or sorry, a few years ago, um, represented uh, the most recent, I think, archaeological kinds of discoveries that have been ma made in those parts of the world. And it is interesting, although I don't have time to go into it in detail because I don't want to belabor you with facts or statistics or graphs or whatever the case may be, but one of the most striking outcomes, if you like, of the Irish archaeological excavations and then the comparison of that data with the original Scandinavian material is the degree to which uh, Viking settlement in Ireland was different. Uh, one of the things we associate with the Vikings, probably the single most striking thing that we associate with the Vikings in the long term, I suppose, in this country is their establishment of towns. Viking towns are cities, Dublin, Cork, Waterford, Limerick, all of these places. Um, they represent a particular um, representation, if you like, of how the Vikings established themselves in what was a, uh, originally a hostile kind of territory and so on. And the, the assumption originally, of course, was that Viking uh, towns and the layout particularly of Viking towns re reflected everything that the Vikings were used to back home and that they had brought with them to Ireland. But it was only with the, the excavations conducted or supervised by Pat Wallace and then published by him in a series of publications after that. I give here just one of the first things that Pat produced. Pat, as you know, formerly the director of the National Museum, uh, produced a wonderful three-volume study of Viking Age Dublin and all its archaeological glories. But this was produced, this is one of six, um, a six-pamphlet series that was produced for the uh, Viking Adventure Centre, which was actually very, very good in its time. Sadly, it's no longer with us. But it did, uh, I think, have a very effective role in, in trying to convey to, to the plain people, so to speak, of Ireland what it might have been like to live in Viking Age Dublin in the period that we're concerned with. Um, however, there is a limit to which we can sort of uh, rewrite the story, if you like. This is something from the Sunday Times, I think it was. Most of these kind of things appear in the Sunday Times when there's nothing else to write about in the Sunday Times. Uh, and it represents uh, a kerfuffle that appeared, first of all, across the water, as I say, in the neighboring island, uh, instigated in the first instant by the BBC. You have to be aware of the BBC. Uh, Time Watch and things like that tend to be provocative for a reason. And in this case, the argument was that uh, all this nonsense about the Vikings having destroyed England and having wiped out the entire population practically, if, if it weren't for Alfred, uh, things would have been ghastly altogether. And then you have a revisionist point of view saying, no, 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 everything that's said about the Vikings is completely wrong. They really weren't as bad as all that. And in fact, probably no worse than your average Danish soccer supporter come to, to Fulham or something like that, uh, and their team loses, which they don't actually normally when they come to England. But in this case, um, various eminent scholars are mentioned. Janet uh, Nelson, Dame Ginty Nelson, as she is now, um, rewarded for her eminent contribution to medieval studies, a very fine scholar, more, more associated with medieval European history, I would have to say, than with Viking studies or Anglo-Saxon history, but a fine scholar nonetheless. And she and others were trotted out to point out that, you know, the evidence for all the supposedly nasty things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you like, of my title, uh, that the evidence was actually thin on the ground. 
And there is no explicit statement anywhere in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that uh, this, that, or the other individual was raped or murdered or whatever the case may be, and therefore it couldn't have happened. If it's not stated in the, the sources, how could it have happened? And then you have the counterblast, if you like, from uh, Alfred Smith, who's also quoted there, if you can make it out on the slide, a very eminent scholar, one of our own, I, I suppose we could call him, uh, who carved out a very eminent career for himself across the water and produced a, a very interesting two-volume study of Viking, uh, Dublin, and York. Um, but this kind of stuff that you get is, is, I suppose, meat and drink to the, the media, so to speak, to the radio and the TV and the, the Sunday supplements and so on. And the idea is that um, things have to be radically shaken up if you're to really understand what's going on. Now, you might argue that a fellow who tramps around Ireland with a helmet like that would probably develop a splitting headache and probably want to split other people's heads, but it's not really his fault. Uh, I should, of course, point out, since we're obliged to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing uh, but the truth about everything, really, but in this case about the Vikings, that no Viking ever had horns on his, or well, I'm going to say her helmet, but in this case, his helmet. Uh, it simply is not the case. But I mentioned Alfred Smith, as I say, as a leading authority, uh, and Alfie, I suppose it would be fair to say, has been in the vanguard of those who dismiss this sort of revisionist type of history, this, this poo-pooing of the, the so-called facts and so on, and, and has argued trenchantly, and I think with a certain degree of justice, that a lot of what has been said by modern authorities about the Vikings, in an attempt to sort of play down the degree of their impact and so on, that this possibly has gone a little bit too far. But uh, one of his singular contributions, as I say, is his book on the Scandinavian kings in the British Isles. And Alfred Smith would be one of the leading uh, authorities, I suppose, who would revert to the idea that really at bottom the Vikings were plunderers. They really were just robbers, certainly in the initial phase of their activities. Obviously, this changes over time, but you know it's easy to forget in all this PC talk about the Vikings that their initial purpose was to come, to raid, to kill if they had to kill, to steal if they had to steal, and to take the stuff back home. And when their uh, lady friends uh, back in Scandinavia saw all this bling, well, everybody was deliriously happy, needless to say. So would you be if your man arrived back with gold torques and trefoil brooches and all this kind of stuff? Um, or indeed, if he showed up with this kind of thing. Um, this is one of the more famous uh, items of Irish origin. I think it's supposed to be Irish origin, although it has certain affinities with Scottish handiwork. Uh, this is the famous Renvike House Shrine, so-called, because there's a runic inscription underneath it which says that uh, a woman, a Scandinavian woman called Hranvik, actually had it in her possession around about 1,000, I think is the date given to it. But it's a house shrine. It's an Irish house shrine. It's as Irish as the day is long. Now, in that context, I suppose I have to say that in, in all this trend towards uh, PC-ness or political correctness or, or toning down the impact of the Vikings, probably the leading authority on, on the offshore island will be a man called Peter Sawyer. Uh, who published several books, a leading authority, a very eminent scholar in his own right, but tended to play down the degree to which the Vikings were actively involved in pillage and robbery and, and all that kind of thing. And his argument was that this kind of uh, trinket, or all the other kinds of things that you saw on the previous slide, and indeed more or less everything that is now in various Scandinavian uh, museums and so on, that this actually was not robbed at all, that this was merely the result of, of financial transactions, of deals done between Vikings and Irish who were happy enough to sell off their, their shrines or their trinkets or their jewelry or whatever the case may be. Uh, as the old phrase goes, if you'd believe that, you'd believe anything, I think. Um, the question obviously also arises in relation to the Vikings, insofar as the Vikings and their first impact um, is to be traced back to their impact on uh, monastic sites, or ecclesiastical or clerical sites, 
Uh, those of you who saw the TV series would have seen their impact on Lindisfarne off the northeast coast of England. Um, by the same token, the same is believed to have happened off Iona. And then in a series of subsequent raids, a, a variety of different Irish monastic houses and, and ecclesiastical settlements would have felt the brunt of their activity. Generally speaking, this is reflected in the artifactual evidence. As I said, there's a lot of material in Viking or Scandinavian museums to the present day, uh, which may or may not represent booty looted by the Vikings. It may be something they bought, it may be something they traded, it may be something they swapped, depends on how you believe. Um, but it's rarely that you hear manuscripts. What I'm showing you here is not an Irish manuscript as such. Again, it comes from the offshore island, in this case a manuscript which we think belonged once to Canterbury in England. But it's now in Stockholm, Stockholm, um, the Stockholm Codex Aureus. And there is a, a note added at the bottom of that wonderful Cairo page there that you see, which tells the story of how it was actually ransomed and how it was bought back by its original Viking looters. So from that point of view, as I say, starting from a position where all was bad, all was terrible, all was ugly and all was nasty, the picture presented by Dan Binchy, we have moved on slightly uh, on foot of different types of research into different types of evidence. And therefore you have books like this, which appeared not so long ago, Viking Kings of Britain and Ireland, the emphasis again here, not just on ourselves, because the Vikings don't have an impact just on this little island. The dynasty of Ivar is obviously something you're going to hear about in the lead up to 1014 and so on. I have no intention of belaboring you with any details about that. But here also you have the, uh, the fruits of what has been an ongoing um, collaborative sort of uh, um, scholarly uh, investigation, I suppose is the word I'm looking for, of all this kind of thing. And I see at least one of the editors here in the room, so I better be careful. Uh, this is a wonderful collection arising out of a conference that was held, I think, in, uh, in Dublin Castle, Ireland and Scandinavia, again in the, in the Viking Age. And it, it brings out the point that uh, after the initial impact, there is a degree of assimilation. There's a degree of accommodation, if you want. There's a degree into which once the Vikings, after they had established their roots, once they had begun to settle after the 840s, once you have the establishment of places like Dublin and Limerick and Waterford and, and so on, that obviously there's a degree of interaction and contact between the natives and, and, and the Vikings, which leads to interesting developments. And it's, it's not an accident, for example, that on this cover page that you see here of a catalogue of a wonderful exhibition that did the rounds in, in the United States, I think, and elsewhere in the 1970s, late 1970s, Treasures of Early Irish Art, a beautiful, beautiful catalogue with wonderful uh, photographs and excellent descriptions. It's kind of ironic that the cover illustration is of something that represents the finer points of Scandinavian decoration. Uh, if you say that this is Irish art, well, it is Irish art insofar as it was produced by a Viking craftsman in Ireland. This is the so-called Clonmacnoise crochet. And it's a very nice example of how, with the passage of time, the previously savage Vikings had been tamed, if you want to put it that way, had been absorbed into Irish life to the point where they are doing things for Irish ecclesiastics and producing this kind of wonderful metalwork again. Uh, the Shrine of St. Patrick's Bell, you would imagine, would be as Irish as the day is long, but here you can see this is another representative, as indeed the Clamac Noise crochet was, of what's called earnest style. Uh, there's, uh, there's two different styles of, of what are regarded as typically Scandinavian decoration, which make their way into Irish metalwork and manuscript decoration in the course of the 10th, 11th, and, and subsequent centuries. Um, and this is a particularly good example, uh, very finely executed, as you can see, and represents, obviously, the degree to which the Vikings had been so absorbed that an Irish cleric would think nothing of commissioning 
uh, someone like Citric, who is named on one of these pieces, to produce a fine piece of ecclesiastical metalwork of this kind. And in fact, again, you could almost turn the tables, I suppose, and say that there's a certain degree of irony in the sense that this wonderful book, there's another nice collection of, of uh, articles, chapters on the subject of the Vikings in Ireland, produced in the famous Viking Ship Museum, as you can see there in Roskilde. But the illustration is an Irish shrine. Okay, it's, it's the Vikings in Ireland, all right, and it's produced in one of the Scandinavian countries, but it is actually an Irish shrine. So uh, given this degree of assimilation, as I say, and given the degree to which after the initial impact, which must have been massive, I don't want to downplay the impact, but certainly after about 900, let's say, when things have calmed down, for want of a better way of putting it, and once the Vikings have become almost an ordinary part of Irish life, and then allowing for another century or so of, of cross-fertilization and getting to know you kind of thing. Once the Irish had decided it was okay to marry off their daughters to these people and, and vice versa, um, things have pretty much reached uh, a sense of, of, of uh, stability. So the question obviously arises, well, what's all this kerfuffle about Brian Baru in 1014 and the Battle of Clontarf? If everybody's getting on hunky-dory around about 1,000, why are we talking about the heroic Irish resistance against the Vikings in 1014? Why is Brian the leader of this heroic resistance? What has changed? Has anything changed? What are people talking about? Um, here you have a wonderful representation, probably the best known representation of, of Brian's uh, demise at the Battle of Clontarf. There's that nasty brother fella uh, doing him to death. Um, the most striking thing about it, I think, is the leggings. Um, the haute couture that has gone into this battle is something that we haven't seen in Irish history before. Um, and again, there's a similar kind of thing, insofar as I'm looking here at Thomas Moore's harp here in this case, this is probably one of the most famous artifacts supposedly related to Brian Baru. Couldn't possibly be related to Brian Baru. I know some of our most eminent authors, they may be in the audience even, I better be careful here, and we're being recorded. Siobhan says, uh, it has been suggested in at least two of the books I read recently on the subject of Brian and, and Clontarf and so on, that because the people believe that this harp, which is now down in Trinity College in the long room, because the nation believes that this must have had something to do with Brian. It is, after all, called the Brian Baru harp. It is the origin of our national symbol. That because the nation believes this to be the case, that it really must have something to do with Brian Baru. Now, if I tell you that's a 15th century harp, and you can do the math, okay? You can explain to me afterwards how we make this, you know, solid connection with Brian. And in fact, looking at it there, it's actually very closely related to two well-known Scottish harps, the so-called Queen Mary harp and the Lamont harp. And there's all kinds of things we would like to know about this harp, but don't yet, but, but these things may happen. So it's a little bit odd or a little bit disconcerting, as I say, when you can read a book by a modern authority talking about Brian, talking about the background to Clontarf, and as I say, you'll hear more about that next week and in the weeks to follow. And this idea that, well, you know, maybe that harp does have something to do with Brian, because here you have a representation on, on the, I think it's the edge of the stone, on the, the box of the shrine of the, yes, it is the stone missile, um, of a gentleman, a, a cleric with a bell, obviously, another cleric with a crozier, and a fellow playing a harp. And that this is how poor Brian was soothed after a bad day at the, at the office. Somebody strumming away on Brian Baru's harp with an angel above guiding the music. And so, and if you believe that, you believe anything, really. But just to go back again and, and figure out what it is uh, is happening in the, in the period up to 1014, 
I mentioned at the outset that we have this data relating to Viking settlement of this country, but I was making the point that it's anachronistic, obviously, to talk about Ireland on its own, in isolation from all the other countries that we associate with the Viking impact or the Scandinavian impact. And in fact, it makes no sense to do that even in relation to ourselves and our friends on the offshore island. Ireland and Britain obviously form a coherent unit in the context of Viking Age activity in these waters. But the Vikings are a much bigger operation. They really are a European-wide, um, continental-wide phenomenon, as you can see from these maps which represent their activities uh, in the two or three centuries that we're interested in. And in fact, that also is beginning to be reflected in some of the more modern literature. This is a book by a friend of mine, Ben Hudson, now in Philadelphia, Viking Pirates and Christian Princes. And you can see here now we're talking about um, the Atlantic, we're talking about empires, we're talking about something much bigger than the Irish Sea or uh, the sea around us, so to speak. And it's, it's something worth bearing in mind that where we get consumed about our own history and the history of the Vikings in Ireland, they also had an impact outside of Ireland or outside of Britain. And this is a standard mm -hmm. history of the Vikings in Spain. So here we are back again at the Battle of Clontarf. So what's going on? Um, Good Friday, 1014, you can see all kinds of things happening there. Um, and again, Brian Brew in the Battle of Clontarf suggests that something cataclysmic is, is happening or we're building up to a cataclysmic uh, development, if you like, in Irish history. And sooner or later we're going to be asked, well, what is the Viking input? What is the Viking effect on us as an island, on our neighbours, on Western Europe, uh, Normandy, places like that, Spain even, as you saw on a previous slide. And in that context, the Viking achievement is something that we're asked to, to uh, consider from time to time. This is a famous book that appeared, um, P.G. Foote and David Wilson. David Wilson, a former director of the British Museum, therefore highly authoritative, as you can imagine. I think there's 476 pages in this book. That's a lot of achievement. Um, so what is it exactly that the Vikings achieved? What have the Vikings ever done for us? Um, if I can sort of echo a, a question that is well known from a well-known movie, Monty Python, uh, those of you who know your Monty Python. Uh, the life of Brian, what did the Romans ever do for us? Well, now, it would actually be interesting to ask that question of the Romans. Um, rather than ask David Wilson about the Vikings, we can actually go one better. We can ask Finton. What does Finton think about the Vikings and what the Vikings have done for us? And here you have a very creditable account reporting what Finton O'Toole tells us the Vikings did for us. But um, it's a rather uh, unfortunate illustration, I suppose, in the context of all that we're supposed to like about the Vikings. Uh, and I leave it up to yourselves to decide, really, uh, what is the best way of approaching this. What are we going to say about the Vikings? What did the Vikings ever do for us? Well, you know, we have towns. We have Dublin, if you like Dublin. I'm a Dubliner myself. I haven't lived in Dublin for 30 years. I haven't lain awake at night. Sorry for that fact. Um, you're welcome to Dublin, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I hear about the tailbacks to the M50 every day and the Red Cow Roundabout. If you think that is the acme of civilization and that we owe this to the Vikings, well, fine, okay. I'm being a little bit facetious, obviously. Uh, more seriously, the Vikings reintroduced large-scale slave trading. Uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of Irish people were rounded up by the Vikings, taken away, sold off into slavery in various other countries. I haven't experienced slavery in a while, but it's not a bundle of laughs, and the idea that we owe that kind of thing to the Vikings is, again, slightly dubious. 
There is, of course, this notion that the Vikings introduced serious trade. The map I showed you previously showing all these Viking routes, trade routes, and the importation of wealth, massive amounts of wealth ought to make us sit up and pay attention. It happened to us more recently, and look, look what the consequence was. Um, but in this case, I suppose you could argue that the Vikings opened up the Irish to international trade and to the possibility of, of, of expanding our economy in one way or another. Again, whether that's what you think is, is worth celebrating, that's entirely up to yourselves. Um, there is a legacy, I suppose, in terms of the names. Um, our esteemed president, Michael D. Higgins, the name Higgins represents O'Higgin, which is Viking uh, in the Irish language. Um, Michael MacDool, I was going to say something about that too, but then we were told we were going to be recorded. But if you think of the MacDools, who are the offspring of the black foreigners, Mac Dovhal, that's what the name means, or the name Doyle, uh, Dovhal, black foreigner, Norwegian or whatever. Obviously, there's a legacy in that particular respect also. Um, how you're to put that all together, whether you could conceivably rerun the tape or roll back the tape, uh, as on the Late Late Show, and conceive of an Ireland without the Vikings. Uh, one of those great what-ifs of Irish history. What would Irish history have been like if those gentlemen had not arrived in or around 800 and stayed subsequently? Um, well, you pay your money and you take your choice, obviously. But if I were to recommend to you one book which I think um, involves a degree of um, dispassionate analysis with a serious historical knowledge. I recommend this book by Oliver Macaron. It's very short, it's very brief, it's a sort of pocket book. Uh, Oliver was a schoolmate of mine as well as a college mate and a, a much, much revered colleague, now sadly no longer with us. But if you want a, a good, judicious, um, and, and generous, I think, uh, evaluation of the Vikings and what the Vikings did for us, then you can certainly do a lot worse than that. But by way of background, uh, that's as much as I think I can offer you. Uh, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth uh, will have to await next week and the weeks to follow. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Dovi, uh, for a very wide-ranging lecture that um, I'm sure um, and possibly was meant to be slightly pro provocative um, about the Vikings. Um, I'm sure it has uh, led to uh, some questions from the audience. And um, if I may um, perhaps indulge myself and just ask one question, um, which um, I suppose one of the key um, images that most of us would have is that kind of image that we're shown here of the Viking uh, boat. And I just wondered whether you might be able to say something about um, an any the impact the Vikings may have had on um, shipping in Ireland or shipbuilding in Ireland, or whether they had any influence on it at all. Uh, thanks, Siobhan. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, the Vikings probably are associated most immediately, most obviously, with their wonderful long ships. Although it ought to be pointed out that these clinker-built ships were not unique to the Vikings. They didn't appear first around 800. We have evidence, archaeological and otherwise, of very similar ships uh, plying the seas around Frisia and Schleswig-Holstein, 
uh, in the 6th century and certainly into the 7th century, perhaps even before the 6th century, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this kind of ship or this kind of boat was common. Uh, the one serious difference, I think, between the Viking ships that we associate with their uh, long-haul travel, if you want to use that kind of terminology, is that the Vikings do seem to have been the first to master the technology of putting a mast on these types of ships. Um, most of the Viking ships, as you are well aware, if you've seen any illustration, have very, very shallow keels. Um, they're really river boats or um, barks, I suppose we would say. The idea of taking one of those out on the high seas, taking your life in your hands in the Atlantic, would require uh, something slightly more sophisticated. And the Vikings, to give them their due, uh, do appear to have mastered the idea of putting a, a, a sail on a ship. Uh, from that point of view. Uh, it would obviously be anachronistic to pretend that the Vikings introduced us to the, the ocean wave. You know, we are, are surrounded by the sea. We have been surrounded by the sea for as long as we can remember. The sea, oh, the sea, a grand yal long may it roll between England and me, uh, to quote Dominic Behan. Um, we have evidence of Irish uh, trade contacts with continental Europe going all the way back to 600 and before. And if you think of all our wandering scholars and how they ended up in Europe, obviously they didn't go with Ryanair. They must have gone by ship. And therefore, there's obviously a long and long-standing tradition of, of seafaring activity amongst the Irish. But at the same time, uh, the, the long ship is a, a wonderful piece of uh, shipping engineering. It's a marvel in construction and, and how it functions and so on. But generally speaking, I think it's possible to exaggerate the degree of influence. There's a microphone on the way, so if you if you wouldn't mind repeating the, the question again. Yeah. You took me back when you said that there were no no Viking ever had horns on his helmet. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't believe they walked around with horned helmets every day, but I do understand that they did have for ceremonial purposes. Is that the case? Not that I'm aware of now, but there are others more authoritative than I am. Now, where did the image of the horned helmet come from, then? It's actually a late 19th century German romantic kind of thing. It's Wagnerian, really. It has nothing at all to do with the Scandinavians or the Vikings, I'm afraid. Actually, funnily enough, if you go to, say, the Museum of Saint-Germain-en-Prés, outside of Paris at the Celtic Museum there, um, you'd find uh, the Celts wore uh, funny things on their helmets, not the Irish or, or, or the, uh, the Scandinavians or the Germanic peoples, but it's the early Celts had all kinds of things like wireless antennae and very bizarre things. But uh, from what I know and what I'm uh, reliably informed about in relation to the Vikings, at any rate, there's no archaeological evidence and nothing in the, the uh, chronicle or analytic evidence that would lead us to believe that they did actually have these horns on the helmets. Ceremonial or otherwise, I'm afraid. Hello. Um, you were talking earlier about how certain scholars are trying to downplay the impact of the Vikings had on Ireland. I was just wondering, too, a Christian society like Ireland, surely the religious aspect of having pagans sacking monastic sites and other religious sites must have been huge just on its own. I think it's a fair point. Yeah, the Irish annals refer to them as pagans, as gentes, and, and, and uh, more gentilium in the manner of pagans and so on, the activities that they are... Um, credited with, if that's the word. Yes, it probably would have had a, a degree of impact, although it's possible, again, to exaggerate that because 
for all that we had been a Christian country, obviously since the time of St. Patrick or whatever, up to about 800. Um, nevertheless, there is evidence in Irish analytic sources for attacks on ecclesiastical foundations in Ireland long before the Vikings came, and we have evidence of this going back to the early 600s. So we can't blame the Vikings entirely for this kind of thing, and we cannot say that they lowered the tone of, of Irish activity, which is actually what you got to a certain degree. I didn't quote it there, but I did, didn't have space on the slide. But to a certain extent, Dan Binchy, when he gave that verdict on the Vikings in 1959. He did go on a little bit about the sort of ritual nature of Irish warfare and how it was all almost like a pageant and people did, did things and they never went to excess and you didn't have this sort of casual violence that we associate with the Vikings. But it's quite clear. We do have a reference, for example, 825, uh, Iona, the, uh, the Columban uh, community of Iona was attacked. Blavok, the abbot, was taken out and tortured. Uh, uh, I think upwards of 60 members of the community were just uh, done to death on the spot. And that's not an isolated incident. It's something that the Vikings clearly did, uh, certainly in the initial phases of their activity. So when I say there's an attempt or, or, or was an attempt or a move to downplay the degree of their actual impact, as uh, by contrast, say, with their long-term effect, uh, I think that is the case. But I think, again, it has come around to a certain degree. People are beginning to be realistic again about what it was to be on the receiving end of a Viking attack. Sorry, just uh, one quick comment, sort of adding to that. Um, I know that through monastic writings, there are records between 800 and 825 of roughly 100 raids along the eastern coast of Ireland. Uh, according to the monks and the, themselves and their ratings, 25% of those raids were attributed to the Vikings. The other 75% were attributed to the Irish population themselves. Uh, whether you wish to comment on that. Uh, yes, it's a question of lives, down lives and statistics. You have to be a little bit careful. I mean, some of it goes back to the, the whole idea of using this kind of information and using data in that way goes back to a remarkable paper by A.T. Lucas, Tony Lucas, the former director of the National Museum, uh, where he published this, uh, I think, landmark publication on the subject of the whole question of the of warfare and attacks and, and violence in relation to ecclesiastical institutions. The difficulty with the, the statistics is that it was all humped together and you went all the way from 600 to 1600 and all the data is poured in and stirred about and poured out again and you come up with some startling results. But it really needs to be reanalyzed, it needs to be re-examined, all of it stratified in order to make sense by century, half century, by decade and all that kind of thing. But I take your point, um, but again, again, you need to be careful because in the context, uh, you wouldn't expect an Irish monastic scribe or a chronicler to say anything positive about the Vikings in the period between 800 and 820 or 830, uh, particularly if you're on the receiving end of an attack. Um, and even though there may be attacks by Irish people, so-called, uh, non-Viking attacks, however you want to describe them, um, there are clearly political reasons and dynastic reasons and matters of intertribal rivalry, or however you want to describe them, that might be regarded as an explanation, if not an excuse, for what was happening in Ireland in terms of attacks on ecclesiastical foundations. It's certainly not the case that ecclesiastical foundations were completely off limits for attack. That is clearly not the case, that over the passage of time, for whatever reason, uh, the immunity that ecclesiastical houses might have expected to have in relation to violence, so that's beginning to wear thin. And part and parcel of the political rivalry that we can trace uh, all over the country, really, it's, it's not exclusive to any one particular area, that that seems to involve um, a 
political element on one side and on the flip side of that is an ecclesiastical for the simple reason that um, the medievals, the Irish and indeed anybody else in the medieval world as far as we're concerned in the western world, probably the eastern world as well, in our period they have no conception or at least no understanding of what we have as a concept of the separation of church and state. And therefore you'll hear, for example, when I think Donoghue, probably my, my, my good colleague Donoghue Coran from Cork, when he's talking about the family of Brian Boru, you'll see the degree to which the rise in politics and in political power amongst the Dal Gaish, the family of the uh, O'Briens and Brian Boru, is reflected equally in the rise in, in ecclesiastical power. And the one is the flip side of the other. There's really no difference between them. And in fact, they would say the opposite, that if you want to be a significant person in the ecclesiastical world, then you must be significantly connected in the political and vice versa. So uh, you can see, you can understand, if you like, why things would have come to the point where if, if somebody wants to make a political point, then they might equally make it against an ecclesiastical foundation and not just uh, a political one. Uh, oh. Would the use of primitive naval warfare by Brian Boru be an example of Viking influence in Ireland? Yes, I think that would be a case, yeah, where the, the use of, of ships on either on the rivers or on the lakes, in, in, ships in significant numbers, and the idea of moving troops in that particular way, that probably could be uh, regarded as a, uh, an influence of the Vikings. I can't off the top of my head remember whether Brian is the first person to do that. I don't think he is, actually. Uh, but that's not to say that the, the concept and the idea and the military tactic is not one that's taken over from the Vikings. That, that's actually one of those that would make sense, yeah. Not being a historian, it hadn't occurred to me that uh, at the time the Vikings were going all around Europe, they weren't just raiding Christian areas, but Islamic ones as well, mm. as your map showed. Do we know from Islamic sources what image they had of the Vikings? That might be a useful comparison. I have here, as it happens, uh, Anthony is not a plant in the audience, by the way. This is entirely fortuitous. It's something I had meant to refer to, but uh, completely overlooked. But I, I happen to have here a reference to an Arab ambassador, Ibrahim ibn Yaqib, uh, a mid-10th century writer, uh, who has various things to say about these islands. And at the beginning of one passage, he talks about Ireland in this way. Ireland, an island in the northwest of the sixth climate. The Vikings have no firmer base than this island in the whole world. No firmer base anywhere in the world than Ireland. That was his impression of the Viking hold on Ireland in the mid-10th century. Um, I'm not qualified, Anthony, strictly speaking, to answer your question, except that in one of those maps, I think, or maybe it's one of the maps I didn't show you, um, what is quite striking is the number of Arab coins that show up in coin hoards. Um, probably as a result of barter and trade rather than mere pilfering, I think, but it's, I, I'm simply not qualified to state whether it's uh, evidence of long-distance long trade or whether it's something else. I suspect it is actually proof of long-distance trade by the Vikings. Sorry. Um just to re-echo that uh, question there, uh, they said that the Vikings um, went east as well. That's right, yeah. To Constantinople. The was Swedes are the one who went east. For before 1014 or after Yes, 10, so before, yeah. Before yeah, 1014. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also there is on the record in Irish genealogies of marriages to Danes before Christ. Now, I don't know if there was a continuation of that down to 800 AD with family links and visits or do you, is there much credibility to that? 
I'm afraid not the last part, no. Uh, there's certainly a lot of evidence for Viking uh, intermarriage with the Irish in the period after roughly the mid-9th century. That's not a problem. And there's a degree of assimilation to the point where Irish poets are, are composing poems in praise of, of Scandinavian kings in these islands and so on. So they are absorbed to that extent, as I said, a little bit facetiously previously, um, where you get to the point where you think you can marry off your daughter, then that seems to imply a degree of assimilation uh, and vice versa. Um, and the absor absorption or the adoption of Viking names obviously also implies intermarriage to a degree. Uh, I can't, I'm afraid, go back with you to before Christ. That's beyond my ken. But in terms, it is a curious fact. Um, I don't know what the explanation is for for uh, Scandinavian historians, although I suppose if you look at the map, you can see the explanation for yourself. And, and that is that the Vikings, as we call them, of Sweden concentrated exclusively on Russia, on, on Kiev and Rus and so on. Um, we don't know of any Swede who came to Ireland. I certainly don't know of any Swede who came to Ireland. Uh, we've all met a Dane, we've all met a, a, a Norwegian, we've all met a Swede. We all have our views on these people. Um, there may be a reason uh, why the Swedes prefer to go east in, into Rus. But uh, as far as we can tell, only the Norwegians and the Danes came to these islands. There's one more down. Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Nils Puls. I'm the Danish ambassador to Ireland. I, I hesitate to take the floor, but, but, but the, uh, the question about the meetings of, of Vikings with, with uh, people from Muslim countries, there is a uh, kind of record, one of the first uh, about um, that kind of stuff, which was written in Spain in the 12th century, or 13th century, about a meeting a few centuries before where after uh, some Vikings went to Spain and, and had a meeting, quite fierce meeting, with uh, the local Muslim ruler, uh, he wondered what that kind of people coming from the far north, what kind of people they were. So he sent a kind of ambassador to what is now Denmark uh, and met the local king and queen there. And, and there's an interesting account of uh, First of all, they thought that we were a bit more dirty, uh, not less clean than, than the Arabs in those days. Secondly, there was a much more equality between men and women already in those days. And there was a, there's a fantastic account of the queen being very interested to, to meet this uh, elegant Arab envoy. And his, uh, some of his people feared that the uh, king, would, the English king, would be envious. And he said, no, no, no way. Um, I decide myself whom I'm going to talk to. So uh, she con they continued the conversation. I think they left it at that, actually. So, so there is, a, there is an, uh, an account that uh, um, at least there was a mutual cu curiosity on uh, that, that kind of thing. Thank you.